My name's Rad, and I want to tell you about the Transformers. My curiosity is aroused. Welcome back to another Transformerific episode of Transformers Tuesdays. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts rolling out tonight. And joining me tonight on this very special episode of Transformers Tuesdays are two, count them, two of my fellow bots. Why don't you give a shout out and let everybody know who's here tonight? Hey, it's Mike, and it is only logical that you cede command to me. Hey, this is Justin, and I demand that you make me the new leader of the fan holes. Dude, don't make me, like, start auditing your fucking fuel, because then it's going to get really bad. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so so I, I don't know if you guys can figure out or not, but... This is, this is, uh, I guess Mike's blaming me. This is all my idea. So if you don't like it, you can send angry emails to fanholspodcast at gmail.com addressed to, it's like CC or like RE Derek. But yeah, so what we're doing tonight is we are doing kind of like our patented comics motherfucker, do you read them type style show, but for Transformers. So we're doing a stories from the spinner rack. So that's basically like where we each pick a comic book that we were able to buy off the spinner rack. Or, you know, I have my little caveats, like as long as it was not purchased from a comic book specialty shop, to me, that's okay. You could bring anything like that. So basically... It's myself, Justin, and Mike, and we've all brought an issue of the Marvel Transformers comic that we're going to discuss tonight, and typically we'll go in chronological order with the release of the comic book, and so I guess what we're going to do is we're going to start off with Mike, and Mike's going to tell us what issue of Transformers he brought tonight, and we're going to you know, kind of give a little brief synopsis of the comic, and then we're going to discuss it for a little bit. So I'm handing it over to Mike, because he wants to assume command. I'm, I'm all brub, battered, and beaten and everything, and I'm strung up with like little yellow hoses and shit, so he can, he can take over. Well, uh, tonight I brought uh, Marvel U.S. number six, and uh, it's it may be the f- one of, if not the first piece of Transformers fiction I was ever exposed to. Uh, it, it was either this or or Marvel number twelve. So, like, I, I my memories are all spotty about that time, but I think I got both of them around the same time, and they were like a gift from my older cousin. And I think he just bought them like at a like he, he, I don't know exactly where he bought them, but he might have owned them already and just like you know regifted them to me. Mm. But yeah, like a, these 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 were probably my first Transformers. Like that they were definitely my first Transformers comics, and they might have been like I said like the first exposure I ever had to Transformers. So like this issue in particular is uh, special to me. And um, it, it it is titled "The Worst of the Worst of Two Evils." Um, it was first published in March of 1985. 
Uh, I probably read it like in 19, like 89 or 1990, like as a back issue. It's written by Bob Budiansky, uh, art by Alan Kupperberg, uh, colors by Nell Yamtoff, letters by Rick Parker and edited by Jim Owlsley, or better known as uh, Christopher Priest when he's writing. Wakanda but, uh, forever! <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so um, this is the... Uh, you know, obviously the Marvel comics started off as a four issue miniseries and then it was so popular it kept on going. So this is the sixth issue. And uh, like, you know, nowadays it would probably be like this would be issue number two, because like after the first four issues, they probably well, we're going to relaunch it again with like a number one or something. So but it, as it as it is, like they didn't do pull like cheap stunts like that back in the day. Yeah, so uh, I, I will read a summary for this issue, and then we'll talk about it. And um, I'm just going to read the summary from TF Wiki because I was lazy, and the summary is pretty concise. And uh, yeah, so Shockwave single-handedly attacks a high-tech oil rig belonging to industrialist GB BlackRock. The rig's defenses are largely ineffective, and Shockwave quickly conquers the platform. During the attack, electronics designer Josie Beller is severely injured. Meanwhile, inside the Ark, Optimus Prime's still-living head instructs Buster Witwicky to connect two wires from his forehead to Buster's own. This results in an electric shock, knocking Buster unconscious. However, he remains unnoticed by the Decepticons and returns to Ratchet outside to report his findings. Megatron is still fuming when Shockwave announces his conquest to the other Decepticons. Unable to control his temper, he breaks free from his repair systems and attacks Shockwave, blasting him across the Oregon landscape and into Valmont High School. But Megatron's injuries are not fully healed, leaving him vulnerable. Shockwave quickly defeats him but refuses to grant him an honorable warrior's death, saying that he has more value alive than dead for now. As witnessed by Ratchet and Buster, Shockwave returns to the Ark carrying Megatron's injured form. Shockwave uses the broken X-Leader as a demonstration to the other Decepticons of what they can expect if they challenge him. While outside, Ratchet and Buster huddle in despair. To be continued. Like I said, uh, this, this, this was a very formative uh, issue for me. And I, I can I do like my memories of the time are very spotty because I was probably only like four or five at the time when I first read this. But I know I had the distinct impression that shock, even though like they, there's like, you know, the obvious like, you know, Decepticon leadership politics in this issue. And they mentioned that like Megatron was the leader. Like, I think I came away with this like issue with the impression that Shockwave was like the main bad guy of Transformers, basically, because, you know, honestly, he comes across like incredibly dangerous, like uh, more imposing than Megatron. Like, I mean, the cover is him, like basically like shooting Megatron in the shoulder and like breaking his fusion cannon and stuff. And like, I don't know the way the way it, it like it's kind of like staged it like Shockwave looks a lot bigger and like meaner and scarier than Megatron. So like, I, I guess that was like the impression they were going for. And it certainly like left an impression on me. 
Uh, it's funny because, like, like I said, I can't like remember what exactly I was thinking at the time. But like, uh, like rereading this issue, and I've read this issue like hundreds of times by now. But like rereading it, I'm like, I, I wonder what I thought of like, you know, stuff like you know, all the Autobots being absent except for like, you know, Optimus Prime's like head and Ratchet. Like, I was like, who, who was I supposed to cheer for here? And I guess. Like, I ended up cheering for, like, Shockwave just because he was the one who, like, you know, won the fight or whatever at the end. So I was, you know, I was kind of like, you know, uh, the bad guys were like the main characters almost in this issue. Michael welcomed his new Decepticon overlord. Yeah, exactly. Yep. (laughs) But yeah, but it's funny because, like, this issue and then I very shortly thereafter, I think probably in the same day, got uh, Marvel number 12 which is where Optimus returns and defeats Shockwave. So that probably like counterbalanced it a little where I was like, oh, okay, well, there are all the good guys. And it's like issue 12 is almost the conclusion to this like story arc. Like if they collected this in a trade like this, this would be the first issue and issue 12 would be like the last issue probably in the trade. So I got like the very beginning and the very end of this like arc. So, like, I, I, I guess I, I, you know, my, my my young mind must have, like, filled in the blanks and, like, figured stuff out. But, like, yeah, so, like I said, like, this is a very uh, defining issue for me. Like, Shockwave in virtually all his incarnations is one of my favorite Transformer characters of all time. And this is where it all started. So, like, I'm curious as to what you guys think. I guess I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit hijacking like origin story type stuff, but like th- th- I, I always feel like it's complicated. I, I, I would say the issue I brought tonight is the first Transformers comic I bought from a spinner rack per se. Um, but with all my caveats of like, did I get these from Toys R Us? Like, did I get them in collected editions? Like, were they gifted to me? Like, the 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 long-winded version is i read this in the transformers collected comics number 2 that's the first time i read it and those were those big kind of they're they're not quite treasury sized but they're kind of magazine sized marvel books and there were two of them for transformers there was the first one that reprinted the first 3 issues of the mini series and then the second collected book which has that great cover to issue number 5 like that one reprinted 4 5 and 6 i mean i had already seen the more than meets the eye, like the initial pilot of the cartoon. Like I was very much entrenched and engrossed in the cartoon and then some of the toys before I ever read these collected editions, even though they came out prior or at least, you know, the, the comics themselves, you know, were on the stands prior to the animated show. And like my personal take on it was, I was kind of shocked and aghast like that. This is like one of those things where, you know, you you talk about like people having to deal with, you know, reboots or crises or, or multiple continuities. I mean, you know, you know, even, you know, Shag came on talking about Star Trek and Star Wars and, you know, the cannons and people freaking out about stuff. I mean, this was me at a very young age going, why is Shockwave not loyal to Megatron? Like, Shockwave's supposed to be on Cybertron guarding it and being super loyal, but then he comes here and totally, like, pones Megatron, which 
in and of itself disturbed me. Like I, I, I was like, but he's Megatron. Like he's, you know, the Supreme commander. And, and like, I mean, Megatron is utterly fucking humiliated in this. Like, and, and it's like, what's funny is I have such a great respect for Megatron. Like I, I kind of was like, no nah, man, this is bullshit. Like, like this almost really, like when I was younger, this sort of cemented to me that the, the quote unquote Marvel comics were not real, you know, <laughs> like, 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 you know, I pulled the marts where I was like, Oh, those comics aren't real. The cartoon is real. You know, <laughs> like I was, I was kind of in denial over it, especially because of, of what happened in this issue that, that shockwave so absolutely and definitively defeats Megatron. And like, you know, and, and then of course, you know, I can make rationalizations. It's like when Justin makes fun of me for like, you know, Venom poning, uh, you know, long haired Superman in, you know, the amalgam comics or whatever. And I'm constantly like, but final night, bro, he, he was weak because the sun was eclipsed and didn't exist and everything. And, you know, I feel like the same way with this where I was like, but bro, Megatron was still recovering from Sparkplug's bad fuel. Like, that wasn't a fair fight. You know, and, and I, I feel like that interpretation is somewhat vindicated in later issues of the Bob Budiansky run where, you know, like you, when, when Megatron is kind of going ape shit Galvatron crazy and like the, you know, the issue 25 with the Predaking stuff. And, and he's like, do you want to challenge me now shockwave? Like, are you prepared to challenge me? Like when I don't have, you know, a bunch of water in my circuits and, and goldfish flopping around my chest and all this shit. Like, are you prepared to pay with your life? And at that point, like shockwave's kind of like, no, Megatron, no, you know, and you're kind of like, oh, well, fine then. But in this, like, you know, where where he's, it's like his his legs are all askew and he's kind of strung out and presented in front of the entire Decepticon army. And then, you know, they kind of do the whole hail shockwave Decepticon Commander Supreme. We function for you and you alone. And then seeing Megatron have to kind of like, he's so wounded, but he can, he's struggling to like raise his hand and salute. And, and he also salutes his allegiance, you know, repeating the words. It's just like, th- this is like when people like the characters that you like and relate to and, and have a sense of, it, it, it's like you, you basically, you know, empathize or personify yourself in, in fiction. Like I, it makes me think of like, the, the HBO prison drama Oz, because it's like, it's like you get to know certain characters and you're like, dude, I like O'Reilly because he's Irish, you know, or, you know, I'm just saying stuff for myself, like reasons why I like characters, or it's like, dude, I like Beecher because he's a smart guy or, you know, what whatever your rationale is. And then you see them, you know, in some cases, literally get butt raped and you're just like, oh, wow. Like you just feel so weird because you were, you, you know, you were basically vicariously, living through those characters and then something really awful happens to them. So I, I feel like as opposed to Mike, who kind of was on shockwave side for this and kind of took his side as being the the one who was the most victorious. Like I kind of already had that empathy or, or relationship with Megatron. And I was seeing somebody become utterly humiliated and having a tough time dealing with that because that was the, the character that I, identified with so i was like it's like it's like watching an episode of the walking dead and the character you identify with is getting his brains beat out with a baseball bat and you're just like 
this feels really awkward and weird because you're like, you, you desperately want the character you identify with to basically rise up or, or do a Captain Kirk, you know, like somehow pull a last minute win, you know, or whatever. But instead you kind of have, you know, a, a, a Captain Kirk character that's simmering and beaten and kind of like, you know, one of these days, Spock, I'm going to slap you around eventually, you know, and you're just like, oh, okay. Like this is, I, I don't know, for me, it was, it was kind of a, a rude awakening to the differences between the, the comic continuity and the cartoon continuity. And then the other thing that I'd like to talk about a little bit is like, this is important to me because it's essentially the origin and introduction of I guess what is essentially a Marvel-owned character, but is the origin and introduction of Josie Beller, who's Circuit Breaker. And, like, she's employed by GB Blackrock. And, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would argue with me if I said that if this had stayed a, a property, a licensed property that was going to remain within the Marvel Universe, kind of like how ROM was, like... GB Blackrock probably would have been Tony Stark. You know, like, like that's always kind of the vibe I've gotten from that character. And, and like, even, like, it's funny, like, like I, I know I was, you know, telling you guys, like, I've been catching up on all those IDW comics. And even, like, this mar- modern stuff where they've got, like, a, a, a Blackrock-type character who essentially turns out to be a, spoilers, he turns out to be a Cybertronian, and he's got, like this suit of armor and everything, I was kind of like, wow, that's even more Iron Man-like than than the Marvel GV Blackrock had ever been. So I think those were some of the things that really sort of stood out to me in this issue. And then and then I guess the weird notion that, like, I, I guess I never really thought about, like, turning into a giant gun and flying around. Like, that that was something that kind of was new and interesting to me and everything. And, and, and as to like who you should have been rooting for on the heroic side, like I, I kind of felt like I was always, you know, I, I mean, I know this is kind of like sacrilegious in a Transformers comic book, but I, I kind of felt like in a lot of these early Marvel comics, you were supposed to identify with and relate to Buster. Like, like it wasn't so much you were supposed to be rooting for, you know, Optimus Prime as a head or even Ratchet in some cases, like specifically in this issue, because you were like, oh, well, Buster's trying to help out Optimus. And he's the one that you like, if something happened to him, like that was really bad, like, I think that would have sort of adversely affected you as well. Like if you if you were kind of identifying with him and, and nothing really terrible happens to Buster. It's like he's, he kind of somehow, you know, gets the, the human magical fan aura to sneak around the arc, even though, you know, all the Autobots are quote unquote dead, except for Optimus Prime's head, you know, but, but he doesn't get caught by any Decepticons. It's not like Ra- Ravage, you know, sniffs him out and then horribly mutilates him or something like that. Whereas, you know, Josie Beller gets, like, it, it's funny, like, I thought of her, like, like I have a very complicated relationship with the, the woman who will eventually become Circuit Breaker, but, like, this origin is interesting to me because she was essentially Oracle before Oracle was Oracle, I guess, and, like, I don't know, like, there's something interesting to me about that. Like, she was already a, a, a computer specialist and or expert who was not crippled, but in in trying to do her job and and i guess she had this kind of 
intense loyalty to GB BlackRock. She's like, no, we're not going to give up this oil rig. Like, we're going to stay behind and all my my software and equipment and defense stuff, like, that's going to work. And, you know, and then, of course, you know, Shockwave going on the rampage, you know, it, it ends up electrocuting her. And, you know, it's it's just like from then on, like, I mean, she's essentially like paralyzed, if not for what would occur later in the series. So you've got somebody who, you know, for all intents and purposes, as misguided as the character ends up becoming, like she's got a really strong motivation for hating the Transformers. So I, I think it's at least very well set up and everything. But of course, you know, the 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 only thing I could say about this issue is like just seeing Megatron, you know, begging Shockwave like that that hit pretty hard for me and I, I was kind of in denial about it for a really long time. What about you, Justin? Like what were your first impressions of Transformers number six? Kinda like yours. I think I was confused and that's going to be my main theme for these three issues like they confused me because i was so young and i was so into the cartoon like i couldn't quite at at, at such a young age i couldn't quite wrap my head around they were two different continuities like it kind of i don't know i think it took me a while to kind of like understand like oh they're you have same the same characters but they're different universe because kind of like you i was like well why are shockwave and megatron fighting like shockwave is extremely loyal to megatron like megatron left this guy in command of cybertron for millions of years and whatnot but yeah i I read this when i was very young i think my cousin had this issue because he he was buying a lot of marvel comics when i was really little like gi joe and stuff and i remember reading it and i liked it but like i said i was kind of I was kind of confused, and then I was also confused about, I was like, why is Optimus Prime ahead? Like, I don't get it. But yeah, I, I like this issue. I just, it, like like I said, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. I'm just like, oh, I don't understand. Just These things don't make sense to me, to my little kid brain. It's funny, because I don't remember being confused about, like, the comic and the cartoon being different, like, for some reason, like... I think I always kind of like, or I, I very immediately like caught into the fact that they were telling different stories, like even at a very young age, like I, I don't know why, like I, I just kind of don't recall having that confusion. You were a smarter child than I, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, th- this is not me trying to basically like, you know, throw Justin off the bus or whatever, but like, I I, I would say I was never confused it was more like just a, a complete abhorrence of one continuity over the other because of what had occurred. Because I think, I think in my mind, like I, I, I kind of like, I, I think in hindsight now I can appreciate this as its own continuity and like appreciate a lot of the Marvel books. And I still have nostalgia for them, even though I had such an adverse reaction to this story, because I I felt like, I I, I think that this was probably a good comic because, and this is going to sound funny, but because like you, you sort of, I don't know, for me, I felt like I experienced Megatron's violation and I took it very seriously. 
And, and so because I was that engaged and engrossed in the story, like I can look back on it in hindsight and say, ah, this, this engaged me in a way that maybe the cartoon didn't. And, and, and for that, like I, I can be appreciative of it in hindsight. But I think at the time I was very much like Darth Helmet and Spaceballs because I, I felt like I was like, you know, oh, you know, the, the Marvel comic will never triumph over the cartoon because the Marvel comic is dumb. You know, like that, that's just kind of how my little kid brain processed it. Not that I couldn't tell the difference between the continuities, but I was like, this continuity is dumb, you know? And I just sort of decided that like, and, and it took me a while to sort of get past that. Like, I, I mean, I, I know it is kind of sacrilegious, but I, I mean, I kind of feel like even as much as I followed the 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 comic book continuity i mean i was pretty loyal to it regardless of those feelings because of how much i like transformers but i think i didn't fully really embrace the comic until there was no cartoon you know what i mean like until you got into like the the jeff senior and 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 you know andy wildman and the simon Furman stuff you know until like oh where am i gonna find cartoons about power master optimus prime well i didn't know about the japanese master force stuff and it wasn't really even about power master optimus prime anyway so the the only thing i could fall back on were the marvel comics you know i mean the, the only the only thing that i might say i liked better than the cartoon while things were happening like in sync basically was i i might say i think i liked the headmasters miniseries maybe a little more than i liked rebirth because i think that i read first and rebirth i think i saw afterwards and like that there was some kind of disconnect between the order of which i enjoyed those and so like that might be like an exception to the rule but for the most part i feel like i you know it 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 was something where i i wasn't always you know it's kind of like how we call ourselves like oh dumb stupid kids because we didn't get or appreciate certain styles of art or artists or whatever and and i kind of feel like there is that scenario with me where you know like i i don't know that i totally appreciated these until i got a little older I think I kind of treated this the way I treated Star Trek comics when I was a kid. Like, in my head, Star Trek comics, whether they were Gold Key or DC, those were the adventures that took place between episodes or between movies. And I think that's what I thought about the Transformers comics at first. I was like, oh, these are the adventures the Transformers have between episodes, you know, unless it's a two-parter. And then when glaring differences showed up, I don't think I knew how to deal with it. Well, that's why you had all those GeoCities and Angel Fire sites trying to reconcile Transformers timelines and everything, because I don't think a lot of us could deal with it either. Like, that's why we all <laughs> sort of broke down and we're like, Primus and then the Quintessons and then Shockwave was loyal and then he wasn't because Megatron stole his gumdrop machine. And, you know, like you're, you're just trying to come up with like reasons why this, you know, he was actually really loyal because he was testing Megatron's like, you know, strength or something. Uh, you know, like you, you, you would sort of just, you know, go mental trying to synchronize it. And that that's probably why you, you had the, the confusion or the reaction you did to it. Cause I mean, there, there is that aspect to it where you're like, you know, is this, is this in Marvel continuity? Is it not? You know, it's like, it's like even within the context of it, it, it slowly 
morphs and changes, you know, along the way and everything. See, when I when it, later on when I would watch the cartoon, I'd be confused why Shockwave would like keep falling on banana peels and letting people <laughs> through his space bridge and stuff, <laughs> and like you know, oh, like you know, get tra- like stampeded by the Dinobots or whatever. Like, and I was like, what are you do- What the hell? What are you doing, man? Like, <laughs> I I have just one final thing to say about this issue, and it's there's an ad for like Tootsie Rolls. And it's like, you can win a, a bicycle by eating Tootsie Rolls. And I think for some reason, like, I got that idea into my little kid brain that I could win a bicycle by eating a bunch of Tootsie Rolls. So, like, I can remember going around to stores and, like, you know, asking for them and, like, opening the wrapper and looking for, like, you know, looking for a uh, you win text or whatever. And I was kind of like, well, where's my bicycle? Like, this this thing said I could win a bike by eating Tootsie Rolls <laughs> and I don't have a bike. Swap a joke sweepstakes. And also there's an ad for Secret Wars 2 that, I don't know, it kind of <laughs> takes me back a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Like, this is, this is I, I will give it this, this is this is certainly a, a Jim Shooter era Marvel comic and was edited yeah. by him. So, like, that in and of itself, you know, to me, like, you know, gives it a, you know, at least it's got the, the shooter stamp of uh, quality and all that kind of stuff. You, you know what? Like, this is something I didn't know, but, like, it might be interesting to talk about before we move on to any other books is that that page that basically we Mike inferred uh, at the beginning of the show where there's they're inside the arc and Megatron just basically goes, you know, shockwave, you are relieved of a command. And he, like you know, basically blasts him out of Mount St. Helen with his fusion cannon. Like, according to the wiki, they're saying that that one page was not drawn by Alan Kupperberg. Oh, yeah, the bottom panel where he's getting blasted out of the arc because he looks, like, kind of toy accurate Uh there instead uh of... I can believe that, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I I just think it's interesting because I was like, oh, okay. Like, that, that wasn't something I ever noticed or whatever so yeah but, that's but you know. yeah that's nothing i would ever yeah, think of unless you know the wick unless someone pointed it out but i i do like alan kupperberg's art like i think it's very dynamic and i mean it's a little like undetailed sometimes but you know like i think all the ideas are put across pretty well yeah yeah I, it's interesting because i think most i don't know it's 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 weird like if you look at like his history of of uh work like a lot of it is like inking at first. And then this is interesting because this is, he penciled and inked this. So like, that's, that's kind of interesting too. Cause it's like, you'll see other stuff where he's penciled stuff and somebody else inks over his work. And then like some of some other things you'll look at books and you'll be like, Oh, you know, uh, he inked Raphael Cannon on Firestorm or something like, so it's like, you know, there, so to me, that's kind of interesting. Cause it seems like he started out, like not necessarily as a penciler, but then kind of worked his way up to being a penciler, I guess. You know, what's weird is um, since we're talking about the art, yeah, I I was telling you guys one night about how, you know, when I was a little kid, I was really into shows like, you know, Beverly Hillbillies or Gilligan's Island. And then when I became a creepy teenager, I kind of turned against that stuff. And then when I got older again, I kind of went back to it. Like that's kind of how I feel about the, transformers art that isn't jeff senior because hmm. when i was a kid i i liked the comics i didn't really think about the art unless someone was miscolored or something like that always bothered me 
But then when I became like a, I don't know, grumpy teenager, like I didn't like the comics unless they were Jeff, Jeff Sr. illustrated. Like yeah. I was really into his artwork and I was like, all that other stuff is garbage. Like Jeff Sr. is where it is. And then when I, when I got older, I kind of like went back on that. I'm like, well, there's good stuff about this too. I was like, you know, look at this panel and look at that. And, you know, there's, there's good stuff there. And I was like, oh, I was just a dumb teenager. Yeah. I, I feel like I can secret brothers you on that, you know, that, that, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. The, I was, I was all about the Adam West Batman. Then, then you reject it and then, you know, yeah. you get older and then you once again, embrace it. And I feel like the, the early art in, in a lot of, uh, the Marvel Comics Transformers series was, you know, you you were you were totally into it, and then and then there was that period where you you kind of rejected it and went, oh no, it's all about you know. For me, I think I think I was more into Andy Wildman than anything else. Like that was the thing that blew my mind at the time, where I was like, oh no, it's all about Andy Wildman, you know, like that. That was my thing. But I mean, it's it's very similar. Like you know, Jeff Senior, Andy Wildman, like the though that era of the Marvel comic, I think people kind of went oh you mean you can you can do that like you can you can draw transformers like that you know and so so but that again it you know it doesn't doesn't mean that there are not things to totally embrace and appreciate about this era of the transformers comics but yeah i, I totally secret brothers you on that just we'll obviously talk about it more since like he wrote all three issues but i think like I, I grew to appreciate like Bob Budiansky a lot more like in later years, like, you know, you kind of like eventually like, you know, when I was a kid, I would only get basically I would only look for his issues because like they had all more recognizable characters on the cover because the later issues, you know, or, or at least up until like the 40s and 50s, like for me. But then, like, you know, later at like when, you know, when I was a preteen and stuff, you know, I'd look online and say like, oh, like Simon Furman's the issues you got to get. So then I'd go out and get those. And then, you know, there would be a time where, you know, you'd hit that like Batman, you know, 60s thing, like you said, like you hit that period where Bob Budiansky's like comics suck compared to like Simon Furman's. But then, you know, you go a little further and you're like, no, you know what? His were pretty good, too. Like, you know, he. I, I feel like his contribution to Transformers is kind of undervalued, and like I like I like his dialogue. Like he has a lot of snappy dialogue. He has a lot of good jokes. Like you know, and I, I think he is generally undervalued by the fandom. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, like he's he's the father of of all these characters you know like the personalities the the you know the the whole kind of enchilada you know that came i mean i know you know me and justin we probably have a skewed vantage point because to us you know like we, we were mainly first introduced to it with the cartoon so we were used to whatever personalities were tweaked from this original kind of treatment, you know, from, from the comics and the, the tech specs and all that kind of stuff. But he definitely like, I mean, and, and he, and he, and he was very consistent too, you know, like he wrote it for such a long time and was always introducing all these new characters for, you know, Hasbro's purposes. So uh, there's something to appreciate about when you can create some really nice art and I don't mean like art in terms of pencils, but I mean in terms of he's creating a story, right? He's writing a story. And there's something really nice to appreciate about the fact that he had 
a number of mandates given to them and constraints and all that other stuff. And it's like, I always find that, you know, super impressive because it's like, it's really easy to sit there and go, I'm going to be artistic when the muse hits me, you know, and when I feel like creating art, but you know, some people don't have that luxury. Like he had a job to do and his job was, all right, you know, you got to write these 22 page comics about this, you know, toy property so it's like get to it man and and it's like well what are you doing this this month well this month we're introducing you know these five new characters and these other five new characters and oh yeah there's still an ongoing subplot from you know the previous issue that deals with this new character that you introduced six months ago you know and you're like sitting there going man like that's a lot to juggle and you still effectively made like a comprehensible and entertaining story out of it like i'm i'm always impressed by that i mean him larry hama like all those guys that had to 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 deal with those kind of things or even even the 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 folks like you know we're always talking about you know joe duffy or whoever was writing you know the marvel star wars comic like they always had certain mandates or whatever or or you know poor people that you know said all right can we do a second death star it's like no, Uncle George is doing it, you know, and so you're like, oh, well, I guess I got to go back to the drawing board and come up with something else. But yeah, yeah, I think I think Bob Budiansky is is definitely um, well, I, I want to say hopefully he's very much valued now. But but I, I think, yeah, you probably had your phases or, or there were periods in the history of the franchise where where he did go unappreciated or he was undervalued but i I think looking back on it you know i i think especially with things like you know like say the toys that made us i mean like when they did their transformers episode like he was a key part of that history and i i think at least now in today's age like that's something that's not going to go unnoticed or or even be forgotten so so in that sense i think that's that's a good thing can you imagine going up to Jim Shooter in the eighties and being like, uh, the the muse didn't strike me. I didn't create any transformer personalities. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like uh that that's when uh you know Rob Liefeld and those guys would all get fucking sent sent out the door or whatever. I, I, I didn't feel like completing my, my art on this top selling book this month or whatever. But yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I guess I guess we'll go ahead and, and and move on to the next comic, which is a comic that I brought, and I we're we're jumping way ahead here, but conveniently, it sort of continues the the story of of some of the characters that were introduced to in in Mike's issue. But uh, I brought Transformers issue number twenty two. The title of the story is Heavy Traffic, and this had a cover date of November nineteen eighty six but was on sale on August 12th, 1986. The cover price was 75 cents. That is essentially my, my touchstone for, for comic book prices. Like that's, that's kind of what I grew up paying for comics and kind of what I'm always going to think of comics as, as being sort of worth, I guess, or whatever. And uh, the, the writer, of course, as we've been saying uh, repeatedly, is Bob Budiansky. The penciler is Don David Perlin, who I, I, I just want to mention, we're, we're going to see these tie-ins to Jim Shooter later, but uh, Don Perlin is uh, the co-creator of Bloodshot, and he was one of the guys that kind of joined Jim Shooter in his valiant endeavors, so I just thought that'd be worth pointing out. Um, the inker is Ian Aiken. Um, and Brian Garvey, and the colorist is Nelson Yomtov. And 
I also mentioned to the guys like, oh, oh, and before I forget, the cover is the Marvel 25th anniversary cover. And like, I have super duper duper nostalgia for this era, like the, these months, or, or I guess this, this month in Marvel, because all the Marvel Comics covers basically had a square around the central image, which was generally like a, it, most times it was a full-on frontal profile of a character. In some cases, like with a book like Spider-Man, where there were multiple comics that had to feature him, like they weren't all profiles. They did things where like Spider-Man was upside down or, you know, uh, Spider-Man was maybe looking off to the right or left or something like that. But for the most part, you'd see like, mostly a full-on profile of the main character. In this case, I don't know if you'd consider it the main character, but the full-on profile is of Menasaur. And then around the borders, you'd see all the era of, the like, the current crop of main Marvel characters and titles. And so you've got, like, I mean, a lot of this stuff is just the bee's knees to me. You know, it's it's the the alien costume or black costume Spider-Man, it's the silver centurion, you know, Iron Man armor, you know, you've got, you know, X-Factor and then, you know, kind of the pre, I guess it's the pre-fall of the mutants, you know, it's it's the mutant massacre era X-Men, it's the Avengers before Dr. Druid's lame ass was on the team, you know, like things, it's a Fantastic Four with the, the John Byrne, you know, She-Hulk, you know, kind of black and white, you know, spandex and all that good stuff. So like there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, for me, there's a lot of sort of feels about these 25th anniversary uh, covers. Cause basically the entire line had covers like these. And uh, this particular cover, uh, the cover artist was Herb Trimpey. And then the other thing I wanted to sort of have people indulge me with is before I read the quote unquote official synopsis, which is something that I kind of cobbled from the Marvel wiki and just made some minor adjustments for my own purposes. Another reason why this comic means a lot to me is like I said, essentially like my history with the transformers is the reason why this issue is particularly important to me is Basically, I got this from a thrifties and it was off a spinner rack. And this was before I discovered comic book specialty shops. And as I was trying to explain or in part is I read pretty much like a lot of these Transformers comics that came out before issue 22. But like I said, I read them in the collected editions. I read them in the digests, you know, so it's like I read a lot of the issues leading up to this, but they weren't you know, quote-unquote, comic books. They were digests. They were collected editions. They, or or in some cases, you know, it would be stuff that I got from Toys R Us where they had those those comic book three-packs. So, like, I remember uh, it was, um, what was it? I think it was, like, 10, 11, and 12 were a comic book three-pack. And 13, 14, and 15 were a comic book three-pack. And then I would read, like, the Digest that had, you know, 16 and 17 with Blaster's introduction and all that kind of stuff. So I had read a lot of these things. And then, of course, even then, I ended up getting the, the some of the single issues because I remember my mom 
um, her cousin, it was my second cousin, cousin Edward, cousin Edward, who, who loved Doctor Who, and I had no idea what it was, and I just thought it was some cheap hokey show that my cousin Edward liked. But he had all these like he had all these VHS tapes that taped like um, Tom Baker episodes of Doctor Who, and I, you know, my little child brain didn't really understand that at the time, but you know, I can use my mental, you know, recollection and go, oh, that's what he was into, and. He had bought the first 10 issues of the Marvel Transformers comic, and he saw how much I liked it. And I remember he had, like, a blue streak, and, um, and that was about it. And I remember reading Cosmic Odyssey at his house and, like, reading a bunch of stuff. And he was really nice to me. And, and he's like, oh, you like the Transformers? So he gave me issues 1 through 10, like, because he's like, I'm, I'm not going to keep reading this, but you, you clearly, like, have a passion for them. So here you go. Here's, here's the first 10 issues. And he's like, do you have these? And I was like, no. And, you know, in my head, I was kind of like, well, am I lying? And I'm like, I'm not really lying. I don't have them. Like, I have, like, collected editions and digests and shit, but I didn't have the actual issues. So I was, like, super happy and thought it was the greatest thing ever. And um, when, when I was actually, like, r- reading you know, picking up the the first thing I picked up off the spinner rack was this issue, Transformers 22. And I can kind of hem and haw, like I sort of retconned that this Transformers 22 was the first comic book I ever read because I used it in a screenplay I wrote. And this is the part you're going to have, I know it's like long-winded ass story, but you're going to have to indulge me is I wrote this screenplay that was called Much Ado About Hamlet back when I was in college. And it was like when I was really into... Quentin Tarantino and really into Kevin Smith. And, you know, for a while there, I thought all I really needed to do was have really cool dialogue and, you know, whatever. And, and, and so I was always writing these screenplays and everything, but this monologue is the opening of the, the, the movie that I wrote. And so I'm, I'm just going to read it cause you'll, you'll understand, but basically uh, you know, scene one, basically, interior apartment day. We enter a simple, small apartment, pan around to reveal bookshelf with Shakespearean literature, movie posters, and photographs. In the photo, we have a close-up on Duke Donovan, who lives in the apartment. Pan down to a group of comic books strung out along the floor. Zoom in to one in particular, Transformers 22. Pages turn as story continues. Donovan voiceover. When I was a kid, the first comic book I ever got was Transformers 22. It was to be a battle royale between the heroic Autobot Superion and the evil Decepticon Menasaur. But things aren't always as simple as they make out on the comic cover. Inside, I read about a third party. Josie, a human woman called Circuit Breaker, who had been hurt by the evil Transformers, the Decepticons. Josie worked as a radio operator at an oil rig which had been attacked by the Decepticons. She would have been paralyzed forever if not for the metal mesh that coats her, thereby allowing her body to walk. The metal mesh had a side effect. It made Josie a living Circuit Breaker with the power to conduct vast amounts of electricity. Now Josie had a way to wreak vengeance on her tormentors. The thing of it is, Jessie couldn't tell the good robots from the bad. She was willing to destroy all robots, to hurt them just as they hurt her. So by the end of the issue, Circuit Breaker is spent from electrocuting the good Autobot, Superion. This leaves Josie with no energy left to stop the evil Decepticon, Menasaur, who truly intends to harm her. 
Most of the time, when I have relationships with girls, I feel like saying, I'm Superion, an Autobot, the good robot, and you just electrocuted me. But then you roll the dice, and you take your chances. So, that's that's my little indulging moment or whatever, but there there were lots of Transformers, well not lots, but there were there were some Transformers references in this and you could already tell the lead character is named after uh Mike Donovan from V and and Duke from GI Joe and is pretty much like a, a lot of the ways I would get around sounding like Brian Michael Bendis when I wrote dialogue was to make things you know, semi-autobiographical, you know, so I could speak in my own voice for characters that were supposed to be representative of myself, but maybe, you know, some of the tricks I used in writing class when I would take it is, you know, you, you tried to write in other people's voices with exercises and then in your, your own writing. So I would like use other people and go, oh, this character is going to speak in you know, so-and-so's voice and kind of do it like that. But the the reason why I, I read that is because that's kind of, in some ways, the briefest synopsis you'll ever get out of me about Transformers 22. And the, the not-so-brief thing is, yeah, there were comics I bought off the Spinner Rack before Transformers 22. There were, you know, Spider-Man comic books and G.I. Joe comic books. And like I said, even, even Transformers comic books, technically, with, you know, the digests and the three packs from Toys R Us and all that shit. But... For the purposes of this, you know, dramatization, you know, that I had written in a screenplay, Transformers 22 was the first comic book because it just, it was like a bookend to the script because the end of the script, it was much ado about Hamlet and we were actually doing Hamlet at the time at LMU and I was, uh, I, I played a couple different roles, but I was the ghost Hamlet. You know, I was Hamlet's father, and they had me decorated in all these fucking Christmas tree lights, and I was trying not to kill myself in the dark. But, you know, anyway, the, the, the point is, I was the ghost of Hamlet, and I was also the player king. And the player king is like, basically, it's, it's a troop of actors that Hamlet brings in to, to entertain his family, but it also kind of has a dual purpose where the, the script that Hamlet has them perform is supposed to uh, invoke a emotional response to try and basically he's trying to, as the kids might say today, he's trying to trigger, you know, uh, uh, Claudius, you know, kind of make him feel guilty for murdering his father and, and all this other kind of stuff and, and trigger his mother Gertrude and all that kind of stuff when they're, they're doing this performance. But one of the performances that Hamlet is looking at is like sort of the player King is giving a almost like an audition piece to Hamlet. And it's just about two guys having a fight. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around why, like, or, or how I would make that exciting to myself. Cause I was like, I don't know who Pyrrhus is. I don't know who, you know, these guys are, they're fighting and everything. And the way I actually made it exciting for myself was I just kept visualizing Optimus Prime and Megatron in Transformers the movie beating the fuck out of each other. So the coda to this film that I wrote a script for starts with talking about Transformers comic books, but it ends with the lead character performing the same speech I performed in Hamlet, but with the images of Optimus and Megatron fighting within that speech. So that, that was my, you know, little sanctimonious, you know, kind of, uh, 
whatever it is, my, my little self-indulgent college script thing that would never get produced and wouldn't happen and everything. But I just felt like sharing that because it's very applicable to this comic. And so, uh, and so thank you for indulging me with that, but I'll go ahead and read like the quote unquote official synopsis or whatever. So people know what the fuck happens in this comic. So here we go. Circuit Breaker and Walter Barnett go over the footage of the rapid anti-robot assault teams, or RATS, first mission where they captured Blaster, Perceptor, Sea Spray, Warpath, Powerglide, Beachcomber, and Cosmos. Although Circuit Breaker takes pride in short-circuiting them, Barnett notes that the robots weren't actually posing any sort of threat. He points out they were actually attempting to communicate with the police cars that first arrived on the scene. Circuit Breaker dismisses this and reminds Burnett that she doesn't trust any robots since she was crippled by them months before. Meanwhile, aboard the Ark, Ratchet checks on Optimus Prime's recent wound, unaware that Bombshell has been spying on the Autobots. When no one is looking, Bombshell inserts a Cerebro shell into Prime's wound so he can control the Autobot leader. However, the shell malfunctions, and Bombshell can only read Prime's thoughts, not control them. Prime enters Wheeljack's lab to see he is fitting skids with a tracking device so that he can find the seven missing Autobots who recently arrived on Earth. Donnie Finkelberg is becoming increasingly uncooperative with the Autobots and refuses to go along with Skids to track down the Autobots, but then Skids takes away Donnie's government check for 25 grand for posing as the Robot Master. With the check held as ransom, Donnie begrudgingly agrees to go along with Skids to find his missing comrades. Optimus Prime and Wheeljack attend to the aerial bots, and they use the creation matrix to complete their programming. Overhearing this, Megatron has Soundwave patch him into the Cerebro shell so that he too can use the creation matrix to give life to his new warriors, the Stunticons. While Skids and Donnie are on the road, they postpone their mission temporarily when a storm causes a woman to crash her car near some power lines. Skids blows his disguise in order to rescue her because the incident ends up on a news broadcast. Walter Barnett sees the same broadcast, and this ends up sending Circuit Breaker and the rapid anti-robot assault team on a mission to track the robot. The broadcast also in turn prompts Megatron to send the Stunticons after Skids so as to prevent the Autobots from getting any good press. That night, Donnie grows tired and insists that Skids pulls into a motel for the night. There, Skids asks Donnie to manually shut him off so that he can conserve energy. The next morning when they leave, they are unaware that the Stunticons have caught up with them. Caught in a traffic jam, the Stunticons use the opportunity to go on a rampage to get close to Skids. Skids radios in to Optimus Prime to ask for help, and Prime sends out the aerial bots to rescue him. The rapid anti-robot assault team arrives on the scene first, attempting to use scrambling foil on the Stunticons. When this fails, Circuit Breaker attempts to attack them directly, but she is knocked out of the sky by Motormaster. Donnie then checks on her to make sure she is okay, but he is confronted by Walter Barnett, who demands to know what Donnie is doing. When the aerial bots arrive, Circuit Breaker orders her rapid anti-robot assault team unit to attack them along with the Stunticons, despite Donnie's protests that they are not evil. 
Walter Barnett is almost convinced until the Stunticons suddenly turn to defend Skids. This action convinces the crazed Circuit Breaker that none of the robots can be trusted, and she storms off to attack them. The Stunticons then merge into Menasaur, and the Aerobots merge into Superion, and the two begin to clash in the middle of the highway. The two are evenly matched until Circuit Breaker intervenes and stuns Superion with a full power jolt, allowing Menasaur to land a blow that defeats Superion. Circuit Breaker runs out of power and begins to fall out of the sky. Walter Barnett catches the falling Circuit Breaker via airlift, saving her from a plummeting doom. With everyone distracted, Skid pulls up, and he and Donnie make a break for it, having no choice but to leave Superion behind. They later hear in a radio report that the Stunticons escaped, and that the aerial bots were taken into rapid anti-robot assault team custody. Returning to the motel for the night, Donnie shuts down Skids for the night. While he wrestles with how to make his next move, ultimately, Donnie's greed gets the better of him. He goes to the nearest payphone and calls Walter Barnett, asking him how much he'll give for one functional transformer with no fuss, no muss. It's 50 grand, double the amount the Autobots have already held hostage from. And that is the end of Transformers issue number 22. And I, I kind of feel like my pre- synopsis kind of gives you an idea of, of what my my feelings on this issue are but i'm, I'm kind of curious about you guys like was this something that you I, I guess how did you guys come to this issue and you know obviously like i'm, I'm assuming you guys have read this before but i uh, you know i'm kind of curious like what your take on this issue is i think this is another issue that my cousin had and like i said this has more stuff in it that confused me as a kid and the first one was Skids. I was like, who is Skids? He's not in the cartoon, which I – at the time, I think I had either missed those two episodes with Skids or he somehow didn't register because his appearance was so brief. But I was like, who is this Skids guy? Like, where did he come from? Like, I don't get it. And then all this stuff about the creation matrix confused me because you have the creation matrix and then you have the matrix at leadership. And I – I think I thought they were the same thing, but with different names, and that always kind of confused me. And then it wasn't until like you know later on in the comics that I was kind of like, oh, the these are two different things. I don't know the way the creation matrix operates in this episode is basically like you know Vector Sigma giving the you know aerial bots and stunicons their their life or their personality or their spark or, or whatever you want to call it. But I was kind of I don't know. All that stuff kind of confused me as a kid. It was like too much conflicting, you know, bits of dueling continuity, I guess. I mean, other than being a little confused about it as a kid, like I did enjoy the issue. I think it kind of freaked me out when you had all those like mounted Autobot heads on the wall at the beginning. I was like, uh, mm -hmm. Power Glide, Sea Spray, Warpath. I was like, are you, are you guys okay? Like, you're, you're going to be okay. I, I think in my head I was like, uh, maybe their bodies are just in thrust to the wall and their heads aren't cut off. I was like, yeah, I hope that's it. <laughs> because, like, I liked a lot of those guys. Like, I had, you know, like, Cosmos and Warpath, and I didn't want anything bad to happen to them. I was like, they're, they're not dead, are they? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think even in context, too, like, you're like, with all the hardships and bullshit that they had to go through with 
Straxus on Cybertron, and then they finally sort of escape and, and, and land on Earth and then, or, you know, take the space bridge to Earth, and you're like, this is, you know, this is their, their just reward or, 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 you know, this is their safe haven is to get attacked by fucking circuit breaker, mm-hmm. you know? I was going to say, like, I, what I like about these comics is the human, I don't want to say villain, but the human antagonist element. And that's something I liked in Transformers Animated. And I remember when Animated began that there was like people murmuring that, you know, Decepticons should be the main bad guy. Like there really shouldn't be any human bad guys. And I was like, well, we've had human antagonists like as far back as the the comics, like Circuit Breaker. I was like, so you guys are kind of like either you're ignorant of this or you just like forgot about it or – or what? I was like, you know, you can have human antagonists or or villains in Transformers. It's fine. It doesn't, you know, if it's Decepticons all the time, it will be kind of, you know, boring. Yeah, I think I think also you make a good point about Skids because I think I, I I don't think Skids was very developed at all in the cartoon. So I I think yeah. I think Skids was a character I became more receptive to in this interpretation because I didn't have such a predefined notion of, of what his character is or was supposed to be as opposed to, you know, other, you know, like basically our predefined notion of shockwave was yes, he's logical, but he's also essentially a loyal guardian of Cybertron. He's, he's basically Megatron's, you know, trusted lieutenant, you know, whereas in the, the comic book that's that's clearly not the case so I, I i don't think that same kind of notion came up when when skids was involved because skids kind of to me he he kind of made his mark in these issues for me you know like and and you know obviously that this is kind of what i was hinting at where there was like a previous subplot because you know you, you're dealing with like issue 20 and you know, skids facing off and, and, and being on the run with essentially the robot master character, which is, you know, another, you know, human interaction as well. And essentially the robot master, you know, is like you said, similar to those characters in Transformers animated where there is a, you know, a human antagonist, you know, that's causing problems for the Transformers. And in this case, he was, you know, he, he was, you know, quote unquote, fake news, you know, like, like they were trying to sell, like some human being was the one controlling the robots, you know, in, in terms of, I guess, sort of pulling the wool over the eyes of the mass public when it came to Transformers and everything, you know, like Donnie Finkelberg's the kind of guy that like, you know, Paul Reiser was in the alien movies, you know, he's the kind of guy that's in it for himself. And, you know, you might, try to, you know, like, like there were like moments of where you thought he might, you know, be an okay guy. Like maybe he's actually having a a decent friendship with skids, but essentially, I mean, he's, he's selling him up the river here at the end. And so he's not, he's not, you know, essentially, you know, he's kind of a, a lot more morally reprehensible than, than a lot of characters that you'd, yeah, again, it's that interesting notion of this is a human character that ostensibly like someone should identify with, but like, you know, I keep saying it, but like the prison drama Oz eventually gets to a point where you feel very uncomfortable having identified with that person. And I, I think that's something consistent in, in like the first, 
you know, I don't know, three or four years of Transformers comics because, you know, and, and again, like you also make a good point of, you know, you've got all these characters heads on the wall. They're kind of mounted like trophies. And so that's something where you can see circuit breaker, you know, kind of has this, not only a warped worldview and, and refuses to listen to, you know, reason of, Hey, the Autobots are the good guys. The Decepticons are the bad guys. I, I think that's something even beyond like shockwaves character in the comics versus the cartoon. Like that was something I always had a tough time wrestling with. Cause I kind of felt like, I mean, other than like, say like Ma- Megatron's master plan, like that two parter in the cartoon, like, you kind of felt like in the cartoon universe, it was generally understood by humanity at large that like the guys that turned into cars that were Autobots, like they were the good guys and everybody kind of knew it. Like humanity knew it. And, and the people that, you know, turned into planes and, and had the purple logos, like they were the bad guys, you know? And, and, in this, it's kind of like, there is that skewed notion of, you know, well, any role, you know, like, like, you know, essentially it's kind of funny. You'll appreciate this, Justin, but, you know, Circuit Breaker reminds me of, uh, you know, General Urko or Ursus or whatever, yeah, you know, that's the, the only, the only transformer and the only good transformer is a dead transformer, <laughs> you know, like that, that's, that's kind of how, how absolute she is. And, and, yeah. and again, like, Circuit Breaker had, oh, it's like now I kind of appreciate it because of how much an impact she had on me and how much, like I said again, how much emotion she invoked out of me. But man, I, I hated Circuit Breaker. Like, I was like, what is wrong with you, baby? Like, why, what do you, like, why are you doing stuff that's so fucked up? Like, cause it's like, it's like, it's like all the wrong decisions. It's like the only, the only people she can mount heads of are the, the good ones because they're not trying to kill her. But it's like you, you, you get the idea if she actually went up against a real Decepticon, like they would totally like Negan her or something again, you know, and, and then she'd be even, again, you'd be put in that awkward position where you're, you're sort of relating with somebody or identifying with somebody who wants vengeance because of an injustice perpetrated on her. But again, she'd either get so deep into it that she would she would get more hurt and more abused or you know it's that awkward thing of hey you're taking your anger out on the wrong people you know and and i was always i don't know i I was always so dude don't you watch the transformers cartoon on you know tv like don't you watch the sunbow animated series like don't you know like these guys are good like i i was always kind of like like this very much has like that whole X-Men hated and feared thing going on. And I, I felt like that was never, ever a part of the, the, the cartoon, you know? And, and so it, it, it was one of those things where for me, it was kind of this kind of rude awakening. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know, like sometimes I wonder if like, for me, this is a very nostalgic thing. And I don't know how, how I, I, I don't know how impartial I can be, but I'm, I, I wonder if, like, is this, is this too much of a, I don't know how to, like, is there too much going on in this story or, or, or am I like, you know, overthinking it? Like, because like, I, I really got into this when I first read it, but I, I, I think it's a little more complicated than some of the simple synopses that, 
you know, just basically like if, if you just take like, you know, Circuit Breaker, Menace or Superion. Well, yeah, that's kind of how I synopsized it in that screenplay. But it's like there's so much other stuff going on with like Barnett and Finkelberg and, you know, Megatron and Soundwave doing like the the freaking time warp with the freaking, you know, like like part of you is like, how does that even work? Like just because they hear the radio waves of the creation matrix, they can, it's like basically as long as you have a Skype call running when they run Vector Sigma, like you can bring anybody to life. Like, you know, there's stuff like that where you kind of, you know, would sit there and question things. And then, you know, never mind like skids and, and the, the continuing subplot of all the poor bastards from, from Cybertron that just escapes Straxus, you know, being mounted heads on the wall and all that kind of stuff. And, and then, and then, you know, never mind that Superion and Menasaur are actually made up of five separate, you know, transformers too, you know? So there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. And then I guess, you know, I don't know if this is worth bringing up or not. I don't know that I really see what the big deal is, but the TF wiki seems to be really impassioned by the fact that they're, you know, basically, this continues after issue 21 where they first introduced the aerial bots. So they kind of make a big deal that they're essentially, you know, wiping the aerial bots clean and starting over. Like somehow you're murdering their personalities or some shit. But I, I don't know that that ever entered my mind or I ever thought there was anything necessarily wrong with that. But I mean, if, if you, if it's something you guys want to discuss, I don't mind, but. This issue is significant to me because I didn't have it for a long time. Like, I think I, it was one of the back issues I could never locate. And I think I finally read it like on some crappy scan site in the early like 2000s or something. Like, it was just an issue that I never like encountered before. And I kind of wonder if it was rare because it had that Marvel like, you know, anniversary border around the cover or something. But but like I just could never get my hands on it. And like I kind of knew from like editor's notes and, you know, flashbacks what happened in it. But I just never got to read it until like, you know, long, long after it had come out. And I, I think it's funny, like you mentioned, like it's like. Like who? Who is the anniversary character chosen to uh, represent Transformers? It's like Menasaur. Like, and it, it's just because you know it's like we can't. Like, it's like shouldn't we put like Optimus Prime on this? It's like no, Larry. We gotta sell the Menasaur toy. Like, yeah, he's well, the, that, he's that, that's kind of like, that's kind of like what my defense is. I'm like, dude, these were about selling toys. Like, I know, I know, for the 25th anniversary of Marvel Comics, like most of it was we're gonna feature the lead character you know, on this comic. But I think for Transformers, usually the cover was always what, you know, what toy are we selling this week? So I I mean, to me, I'm like, I I don't know. I, again, that seems like something on the TF wiki that seems like, you know, uh, an alt ed, you know, opinion piece type thing where I'm like, "Eh, uh, I guess that's your opinion, you know, like, but I mean, I don't know that I ever, you know, it's not like I'm like horribly offended that like, I mean, come on, like, if you look at the Marvel logo, I mean, it's like, dude, Optimus Prime's there. Like, I mean, it's not like he's not represented, you know, in the little, you know, upper left-hand corner or whatever, right? So, I, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of like if they did for the G.I. Joe cover, and it was like Big Lob or something. Like, I'm trying to remember, I think the, 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 the G.I. Joe one was Snake Eyes, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, well, that makes sense, but... This issue doesn't really hold any other significance other than the fact that I read it way later and like, you know, 
I, uh, I, I missed it for a long time. And I mean, like, I, I, I can see what you're saying about circuit breaker and like, you're like, come on, man, like be, be cool. I'm, I'm like the main, the main reason why this has, uh, uh, significance to me. This comic is because circuit breaker is a fictional character who emotionally scarred me. And I make, <laughs> I make parallels to real life women who have emotionally scarred me. So. <laughs> And the only other funny part is, and the wiki makes mention of this too, is that panel where like Skids does his like Mister Fantastic impression, where his like arms, his upper arms, like kind of snake out out from under his hood or whatever, because like there was no like reference material for his upper arms, so like like uh, Don Perlin, Perlin just kind of assumed his like lower arms kind of came out the bottom oh, of his yeah, torso. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I can see that because the, the, the limbs are really, really tiny. I was just going to joke. It's like they wiped out all the aerial bots' minds and Optimus should have been like, looked at Slingshot and been like, oh, I think we can leave this one brain dead. <laughs> no! And and like, like, I think the wiki even mentions it, but it's like Silverbolt did okay in that debut issue like i don't see why he had to have his mind wiped i don't know like i i I still don't know what the like i maybe it's just me but i'm like this is kind of before like sparks and like that kind of thing like i i think they were just treating him like hey you know what like they went out and it didn't work out like Let's wipe the computer's hard drive and start over again. It's not like it's not like the operating like they're still gonna have the same operating system. Like if you just look at it as a computer, like it's still gonna be like you know Windows Ten. Like it's not it's not like you totally like murdered them. It's it's more like oh the, these couple things that weren't working out like this this dumb like you know uh, you know slingshot app that you know made him act a little stupid. Like we're just not gonna install that this time. But 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 we need to like sort of start over to get rid of the flaws. But the baseline, I think, I don't know. Maybe I'm just defending it too much because I don't think it's a big deal. But I I don't know. I do like when they do that though. Like it, one of my favorite parts about this book, I guess, is like for some reason, like I really like Don Perlin's Megatron. Like all his like expressions and like how like giddy he looks when he's like swiping the, the 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 creation matrix signal like i i don't know what it is but it's like i dig just the way he, he sort of made him look and and i don't know how kind of evil and and malevolent and giddy his expressions are i mean there aren't too many of them in this issue but like when he's on screen like or i guess on panel you know it, it to me it looks pretty cool I, I Don I like Don Perlman's art, even though like sometimes he has there's a lot of errors in it, and like especially like like identifying characters, and that's not all down to him. Sometimes it's like the colorists and stuff, but and you know like Nell Yamtov is like you know infamous for block coloring, so yeah, it's like I yeah. think in that in that first that first group shot of the stunticons it's like only drag strip is in color and the rest of them are all like block colored uh, you know it, it, i understand it's it was the time but you know sometimes you're kind of like oh what the hell there's there's also something interesting about like the fact that like the stunticons are like tailing skids and like I, it almost makes me think of like well, in a weird way like this is totally random connection but it, it makes me think of the the Spielberg movie, you know, the, what is it? I think it's like drive, you know, where the, 
the the trucks like chasing after oh, the guy yeah. or whatever. So it's like in in some sense, it's like Motor Master is kind of like the 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 rig from Drive, like going after Skids and and Finkelberg and everything like that. Well, yeah, I think. I think that'll do it. I mean, you know, that, that, that I, I, again, I, I will thank you guys for indulging me with the, the, uh, little excerpt from, from my, you know, really old, uh, screenplay or whatever, because I don't often get to share that too much. But I guess what we'll do is we'll move on to the final issue for the evening of Marvel Transformers. And Justin was kind enough to bring a Marvel comic as well. So why don't you let us in on which Marvel comic you selected, Justin, and then we'll discuss. I brought the Transformers, number 27. It has a cover price of 75 cents and a cover date of April 1987. The story is titled King of the Hill, written by Bob Budiansky and illustrated by Don Perlin. With Optimus Prime dead, Grimlock demands the other Autobots make him their new leader. Meanwhile, the space bridge allows Trypticon to travel to Earth. In base mode, Trypticon begins to cut down the Autobots. The Dinobots, however, challenge him and battle Trypticon to a standstill until Ratbat opens the space bridge and commands Trypticon to return. At issue's end, Grimlock is proclaimed the new leader of the Autobots. So I, this is an issue that I did not buy as a kid, but it was bought for me. And I believe it was from that same Piggly Wiggly where I got most of my Marvel comics. I know they used to carry Transformers, but it seems like somewhere in the 30s or the 40s, they just kind of dropped the book. And I don't know why. Maybe it was just not selling as well by then. But, but either way, uh, this was purchased for me. And probably because of the cover and it has this great cover of the dinobots fighting trypticon which like most little boys i was crazy about dinosaurs and to me the idea of a robot turning into a dinosaur was the greatest thing ever so you had like the dinobots which are you know my favorite subgroup of transformers you have them fighting an even bigger dinosaur, and I was just floored by this. Like, I don't think I had seen Trypticon in the cartoon series at this point. Like, it must have just passed by me or something. But I was just, I, I was just like floored by this cover, and I was like, I gotta have this. And then you have a really great battle between the Autobots who try to battle Trypticon, and then eventually the Dinobots get in there and they they put up a really good fight, and basically like you know. Senator Ratbat is like, oh, you better get back here, Trypticon. You're getting your butt kicked. And then, like, at the end of the issue, like, Grimlock, who was one of my favorite Transformers, becomes the leader of the Autobots. And I was just like, what? Whoa, like, that's weird. Like, because, you know, again, differences between the series and the comic. I'm like, but Grimlock's a dummy. Like, I love Grimlock. Like, he's one of my favorite Transformers ever. But, like, he's... He's not leadership material. At least cartoon Grimlock is not. Like I said, this is just another one of those cases where like some of the differences confused me a little bit. But yeah, like this is a total nostalgia trip for me. And you know, like I said, I love the cover and like I ate this up as a little kid, basically because transforming robots who turn into dinosaurs I thought was like the coolest thing 
ever when I was a little kid. This is, yeah, this is absolutely one of my favorite issues of all time. And one, yeah, I did own when I was younger and you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, you know, you look at the cover and you're like robot dinosaurs fighting a bigger robot dinosaur. (laughs) Like, man, like buy me all these toys, like right now, (laughs) like, you know, it's, it's, it's a undeniable selling tactic. And I, I'm pretty sure I had seen five faces of darkness by the time I read this issue because it was one of the like VHSs that was available for rental at my like local store. So I knew Trypticon. So this is, this is finally an issue where like the cartoon like clashed with the comic for me. And, but like, I, I think eventually I tended to like prefer like Trypticon's portrayal in this comic over the cartoon. Cause you know, it's kind of the same thing as the Dinobots. Like in the, in the cartoon, he was like a big dummy, you know, voiced by, uh, you know, Raymond's brother or whatever. Like, <laughs> and uh, there's a Raymond. But, you know, in the comic, he's actually kind of like a witty and like menacing and like intelligent kind of guy. And I think Trypticon is probably in my like top. Uh, I think I, I put him like in my top 20 or 30 favorite characters in Transformers. And that's because of this issue, probably, because he's just, I don't know, his attitude about doing stuff is, like, so, like, he, like he's, and it, it, it's in Budiansky's, like, universe profile for him, where he's, like, so convinced that he's, like, you know, he's such a big threat that he's, and he's so powerful that he really doesn't have to take any crap off anyone. And that kind of, like, works in this issue's favor when the Dinobots actually, like, you know, start to hurt him and stuff. And he, you know, he starts to get frustrated and then Ratbat tells him to retreat and stuff. So, you know, I, like, I, I like every bit of this issue. And I, I'm kind of sad that, like, like Grimlock goes through a really nice, like, you know, character journey over the course of this issue. And then they completely like, it seems like Budiansky completely forgot about that in the next issue. And, you know, once he becomes like King Grimlock, he not only does he not talk like normally, like he does in this issue anymore, he goes to his like cartoon me Grimlock speech pattern, Mm -hmm. but he completely like forgets the lesson he learned in this issue. And he's kind of, you know, he's King Grimlock tyrant and it, it's kind of something that almost like repels you from him. Yeah, that's see the the thing about this was th- this I consider a spinner rack comic, and it's interesting because it took me on a total tangent because this was a spinner rack comic that I'm pretty sure I got off the spinner rack comic and then somehow lost, and then I ended up reacquiring it as a back issue or whatever. So it was me like kind of going down the rabbit hole of like, Oh, like I, I remember I was like super sad. Cause I think I, I had gotten like the first part of Craven's last hunt, the, the fourth part, the fifth and the sixth part off the spinner rack. And then when I went to go visit my family in New York, like I was able to get the second and third part as back issues. But then I'm pretty sure what happened was I left these like under, the seat in a plane and then, you know, never to be seen again or whatever, you know, something like that. So, but anyway, um, total side tangent, but in terms of what you guys are talking about in terms of the discrepancies, like I had seen five faces of darkness before reading this. I did note, you know, to me, it's, I think I was used to it by this point, but it was like one of those things of, Oh, here comes the ravage rat bat laser beak, you know, whatever syndrome it's like in the cartoons, they, they bark and squawk and growl and, 
have animal noises or 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 sound incredibly dim-witted, but when you get to the comic book, it's like, well, you can't have Ravage just growl ad nauseum, like he has to have a conversation with Soundwave or Megatron, so he talks. It's like, you know, Trypticon can't just be like, oh, Red Bat, I hear, you know, like he's got to actually like say more stuff than that. So, so he is a, a, a lot more eloquent. I think this is a great done in one issue, like that kind of, uh, you know, terminology for comics. And, and again, you guys are absolutely right. Like Grimlock has a fantastic arc in this, you know, he starts out being really arrogant. He, he kind of despises prime he he says he's weak for for you know taking humanity into account in the middle of their war that if he was in charge he'd you know not worry about that but he's even momentarily impressed by this human character rachel that they encounter which i guess they're archaeologists that are like or paleontologists that are like you know they they come across the dinobots footprints and and you know some of the younger students think they might be real actual, you know, dinosaur footprints, but, you know, it turns out they're, you know, mechanically generated, and, you know, the explanation is they're dinobots and everything, but, you know, this girl, Rachel, like, it's kind of funny, because, like, you'd wonder, like, why did she never come back? Like, like, it seemed like Grimlock was actually kind of semi-impressed that she didn't flee in terror from him, and that was one of the reasons why he sort of turned around. And, you know, he had a lot of good internal monologue, like, you know, or at least, you know, it's not like today where it'd be all in narration, where Grimlock's like all Frank Miller and Grim and Gritty and shit, but it's like he had a lot of internal thought balloons, and it was one of those things where he's like, yeah, I figured I'd have to, you know, knock a few Autobots around to to be in charge, but I didn't want them to get slaughtered by Trypticon, you know? And, and, and so it's in, and even when he encounters the human, a lot of it is all internal thoughts and stuff like that. And, and it's interesting because as, as close as Grimlock is to his fellow Dinobots, because he has that view of strength is everything. And, and he doesn't want anyone to see his weakness. You, you see him wrestle with things internally and not, let the people under his command see that he's having any kind of conflict and or doubts, you know, and that, that is, uh, you know, I know Justin was saying, oh, Grimlock's not a leader, but that kind of separation between, you know, like basically not letting the people that you are leading see you sweat. Like that's, that's a, uh, that's a quality of someone who's a leader, you know, like, so, so there, there, there are these things that they set up in this, in this issue. And, and even by the end of it, it's like, yeah, at first the other Autobots, you know, and then a lot of them, this, this kind of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, this, you know, uh, I don't know, Battlestar Galactica quorum of 12 or whatever that gets together with all these Autobots. It's like people that, that could have conceivably taken the reins. I mean, you've got, like Blaster, who kind of was the guy leading along with Receptor, that team of people on Cybertron. You know, you've got like, you know, Jetfire, Hotspot, Silverbolt, like basically anybody who's like kind of in charge of a group of Autobots. And and then, you know, it would make sense that even though they were kind of, I don't know, like a rock star moment 
in the Transformers comic where they're like, fuck this shit. Like, we don't want to hang out with the Autobots anymore. You know, it kind of makes sense that Grimlock would be part of that conversation of, okay, now that Optimus Prime has, has, uh, you know, left the mortal coil, like, who's, who's going to, you know, be our leader moving forward, you know, and Grimlock is the leader of the Dinobots. So you'd think like, if you were going to have these candidates, it would be leaders of all these sub teams that could potentially step up to the plate and be, you know, the leader of the entire, you know, arc crew and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. And then, and then again, the thing that's devastating about this issue is that like, you know, Mike saying like, you know, in the second issue, you know, or the, the subsequent issue, all this character growth is like completely jettisoned and thrown out the door. And he just becomes like, he somehow regresses and becomes even worse. Like there's no more human interaction. He treats everybody under his command like shit and he's wearing the crown. And you, you, you actively like, if I loved Grimlock on, you know, the movie in season three and, and even in the, you know, he made me chuckle and things in season one. And, and I, I love the character. Like, after this issue, like, Grimlock was an antagonist. Like, you hated Grimlock. You were rooting for Blaster to kick his ass in that uh, issue, what, 41 or whatever. That, I mean, that's the one thing about this that's, like, a shame to me. But that doesn't that doesn't really affect this issue. Like, this issue in and of itself is really good. I mean, I, I kind of had trouble rationalizing that the Dinobots were holding off Trypticon because I had this vision in my head, you know, the five faces of darkness, the only person who could stand up to Trypticon was Metroplex. And again, that, that's another kind of lament of mine is like, wow, they, they managed to introduce Trypticon in the comic series, but we never got, I mean, I, I know he was probably in some UK comics and stuff, but to me, like, it was like, oh man, they never, they never really introduced Metroplex in the American series. And I'm like, wow, what a, what a shame, what an oversight, like, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and also speaking of discrepancies between cartoons and comics, like that beginning sequence where swoop steals, like the, the oil fuel tanker or whatever, like that was something that I was like, well, why aren't they converting this to energon? Like, you mean transformers can just like slurp on oil and that's all they need to do. Like, I, I guess that was something that was, you know, for me, interesting reconciliation or tough to swallow or whatever you want to call it, you know, like that kind of thing. And, and, and then interestingly enough, this is, uh, technically the first comic appearance of Senator Ratbat, which again, you know, that, that was something I was always annoyed with. I was like, Ratbat don't fucking talk. He's not the leader. He's not a, you know, like that, that was one of those things that like drove me up the wall, but for all intents and purposes, I kind of think, like, and, you know, I don't know, Mike might argue with me and tell me I'm wrong or I'm a toasthead-like slingshot, but I kind of feel like of all the books that we brought tonight, I, I think Justin brought, like, the best book. Like, I think of the three that we all brought tonight, like, I, I think this is excellently executed. I, I like the art a lot. Like, my, my only regrets are that it, as good as this issue was, for whatever reason, like, the life lesson of Grimlock, like, just didn't didn't stick and 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 we didn't really get to revisit the the human character rachel and we didn't really get to see trypticon like seek vengeance or anything like that so i i guess those like i guess in hindsight you know that 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 not a lot was followed up from this is a bit of a disappointment but the issue itself is is really really good
Yeah, I agree. You're supposed to call me a toast head and say, well, <laughs> no, you're supposed to wear, I mean, wear your crown and, and kick me out of the Like six, the six might be a more sentimental issue for me, but I think this is just a better issue in general, basically, like you said. I win. <laughs> I always win. I do like um, how Triptychon has his little buddy wipeout. It always confused me because, like, you know, the toy of Triptychon comes with Full Tilt, who, who transforms into his, like, little purple chest plate. And I was like, who's this wipeout guy? And, it like, it turns out, like, they, they just kind of repurposed, like, a tailgate toy and, like, had him, like, repainted black, like, in the comic and made him, like, Triptychon's little buddy. And, uh, like, I, I was always curious as to what the logic of that was. Like, like Triptychon comes with a little car guy that's his assistant, but they made up a new character, basically. And, like, I know he's pretty funny, too. Like, I think I, I enjoy, like, Wipeout and Triptychon's interactions in this comic, where Wipeout calls him your immenseness. And, like, he's like, you know, he's like, your wish is my command. Like, I'll, I'll do everything you say. And, this, uh, you know, I'm going to do it right now. And Triptychon's like, just go. Like, okay. Like, I, I like Wipeout so much that um I sprung, there's a, a club exclusive repaint of that tailgate toy from like a few years ago from the generations line as uh i think it's night racer but who is who is like a botcon like exclusive character but it's tailgate in like black and blue and it's basically the same color scheme as wipeout so i just kind of got him to repurpose it as wipeout so that's pretty cool i wonder i wonder if the logic was to do with the fact that the car is an essential part of his robot mode. Like, cause maybe they just didn't want to draw him without that piece or something without the chest plate. Yeah. yeah I, could... I, I don't know. I, I know that's like a weird rationalization, but like, cause, cause if, if, if it was actually, what is it? Full tilt or whatever his name is. Like if it was him, then, yeah. then, then you would conceivably, it would, it, the lo- logically, there would be a big empty spot on Triptychon's chest, but yet there never is one. So I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. So I, I think I think that wraps things up for tonight. If anyone has any other questions, comments, and or concerns, they can reach out to us at fanholespodcast at gmail.com. If you liked listening to this stories from the spinner rack you know, exclusively for Transformers and you want us to do some more, uh, let us know because, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're keen on, you know, I, I'm sure we have plenty of Spinner Rack stories about Marvel Transformers comics and we'd be happy to share them with you. And, of course, the backlog of all our Transformers Tuesdays episodes can be found on fanholespodcast.blogspot.com and you can contact us on all kinds of social media. We're on Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. We appreciate all the likes and feedback and, and retweets and hearts and all that good stuff. And we have all kinds of other spin-off shows in addition to Transformers Tuesdays, uh, like with the stories from the Spinner Rack. We, we've got comics, motherfucker. Do you read them? Where we talk about comic books and specifically sometimes we do stories from the Spinner Rack on there. And we also have Mobile Suit Mondays, we've got Toku Thursdays, we've got Sentai Saturdays, we've got 
Big in Japan, where we talk about anime. We've got Justice, not entirely dissimilar to Lightning, a Thunderbolts podcast. And we've got the Fan Holes podcast proper. So if you've enjoyed listening to Transformers Tuesdays, we hope you consider checking out all our other shows. And until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC, signing off. Hey, it's Mike, signing off. Me Grimlock, no bozo, me king. Blaster and Perceptor must be yeah, regretting it. It's like, you know, one week after, or not one day after, it's like, you know, me Grimlock King now. Wait, what? Like, I thought you, what are you talking about? What's this now? What, you're wearing a crown? Like, is that another uh, Darth Helmet thing? Grimlock's like, fooled you. I didn't learn the lesson at all. It always, like, like, Grimlock stayed in command for, like, another, like, 15 issues or so. Like, so, and it always bothered me that Blaster and, like, Goldbug were the only ones who were like, hey, enough of this shit, like, Grimlock. All of those guys, basically, like, Omega Supreme, like, Jetfire, like, Hotspot, you know, Ratchet, and, like, none of those guys really stood up to Grimlock. They're, they're, uh, without Optimus Prime, they were all a bunch of pussy assets. I guess what Grimlock was saying was right. They, they were not strong enough to stand up to Grimlock. But it's weird how, like, that, that version of Blaster, I think, he was almost, you know, Rodimus era. Like, it's, it's weird that, like, because you know how we were talking about how they, they had to make distinctions, like, they purposely had distinctions between the comic and the cartoon and all that stuff. So, like, why the need to synchronize Prime's death? You know what I mean? Like, like if, if they were so vastly different and they were telling their own story, it's like, whoa, just because he died in the movie doesn't mean he had to die in the comics right then. Like, couldn't you say someday they'll get to the movie and he'll die then? Like, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's always kind of funny that that kind of corporate synergy that seems almost it, it, it didn't necessarily have to happen because the movie takes place in 2005 and they weren't in 2005 you know and it's not like budiansky used like rodimus prime or galvatron or any any of those guys yeah but it it says like he made grimlock and ratbat the leaders to like confound like readers expectations and stuff and they were certainly (laughs) confounded it worked yeah exactly (laughs) but like it just seems odd like like you know hasbro didn't like mandate anything in that regard for a (laughs) little while I wonder if the Hasbro mandate was, oh, Prime's dead, so you the mandate is you have to retire these characters in lieu of these other characters. But other than that, we don't care. Well, man, like, he, he sold the shit out of that Ratbat toy. I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess Ratbat needed to be sold because he came he came with Frenzy, and, like, people were, were already like, well, I already bought Frenzy, like, so. Yeah, but you get the, you get the extra bling with the gold. Um, yeah, gold, the gold weapons. Gold blasters. Yeah. That issue, that issue twenty seven, did sell me a Trypticon like thirty years later. But hmm. yeah. <laughs>
How do you let you do you enjoy that um, trip to con? Yeah, he's he's really good. Like he's in storage now because he's kind of big and unwieldy. Up like wherever I put him, like that will dominate the entire like you know area. So I had to like put him back in storage. But like when I take him out, he's pretty awesome. Like I saw I saw a pretty cool setup where the guy had the the Metroplex and the Triptychon, and then he had all these. Um, you know those third party like war in the pocket toys. Oh yeah, Iron so, Factory. Yeah, so yeah. so he had a bunch of those like kind of in a little battle scene and I was like, "Oh, that's really cool." Like that really sells the scale of it and and, and yeah. those those like, I, I've, got, I've got an Iron I've got an Iron Factory like Optimus Prime. Okay. So like you can kind of like pose him in Triptychon's jaws or whatever. Cool. 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 Cool, 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 cool.